Well, good morning again. Good to see you, and thanks, Lisa, for updating us. And uh, it's pretty cool that we were able to help them impact a uh, community and uh, pray for them. And, uh, you know, we were able to do some, with God's help, some amazing things uh, with our own, uh, with the money. Money is not a big thing to God. It's huge to us, but God can provide. We'll be praying for that building, um, you guys, in a, in a safer place and a, a nicer facility. Glad you're here today, and uh, it's great to know what God's doing all over the the world and out here in our home state as well, uh, so it's good. And right here this morning, uh, we're asking God to, to speak to us and through His Word and challenge us. Remember, a few weeks ago, we began the study of First Peter, and we said the reason that it was given was to encourage us in difficult times. And we are living in those challenging days. All of us live uh, in a world that is difficult, and today we're going to be talking specifically about some ways that we can react whenever the world comes down on us, whenever we feel like we're being treated unfairly or when we are challenged in different ways. So uh, uh, it's difficult, but, and they lived in those days even more difficult back then. You know, our son uh, uh, lives in Hong Kong right now. He's back in the U.S. for a few weeks, and they're going to be here in, next month. But uh, for a few years, they lived in South Korea. And every time I would talk to him and get communication, it was back about five or six years ago when every day it sounded like we were getting threats from North Korea, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, testing a missile, whatever it may be. And so there was uh, oftentimes worried about them being so close to North Korea. You know, in North Korea, the government controls everything. There uh, is no separation between church and state. Uh, you worship the government, you worship the emperor or the dictator. And if you are found to be worshiping anyone, anyone else, uh, they put you to death and do horrible things to your family. Uh, the uh, Christianity is, is not allowed there in, in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, we hear all the time that probably things are worse than what we could even imagine in that particular country. Uh, think about that a little bit and transfer that back to Bible days when the Bible was written because that's kind of how it was in the setting in the Roman Empire for early Christians. Early Christians did not have the same rights as Roman citizens. Uh, they were looked down upon and they were despised and they were persecuted. Um, they oftentimes had to meet underground, as uh, Christians in China or maybe a Muslim country might have to do today. And uh, not all the uh, emperors were anti-Christian. Uh, in fact, uh, Constantinople uh, actually created or called Christianity the state religion for a time. But many of them were evil, men like Claudius and Nero, and they brought down persecution on Christians and did horrible, horrible things to them. Now, looking back at that in the setting of the Scripture... Uh, we can get some understanding about how to live today. We, li we think that we have often corrupt and ungodly leaders, and uh, we struggle with respecting them, uh, but they are nothing at all compared to the rulers and the authorities of, of Peter's day. And you might wonder, well, how did Peter, how did Christians deal with being so oppressed, being told they couldn't worship freely, or, or uh, maybe being drugged from their homes and being imprisoned or, or put to death? How did they respond to authority? And that's where we are today in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as his supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as, li as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, if you know much about the life of Peter and most of the other disciples, you know that they had a lot of run-ins with 
uh, leaders who opposed them. For example, the um, religious leaders of that day, the Jewish leaders, opposed them, persecuted them, always trying to get them in trouble uh, with the Roman authorities. And they had to deal with governors and rulers and even uh, Pilate himself at different times. So there was a lot of conflict they had with human authority. And you might say, well, how did they deal with that? How did they submit to that authority? Well, Peter says we have to submit to it as, uh, as from God. And the Apostle Paul explains why as kind of a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servants for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So what you find is that the writers, inspired by God, agree, come together, and say... Human authority may not be right, may be evil, may be wicked, but we're to be under that as believers. And in fact, Paul says there is no authority except that which God has established and allowed. And we might understand my question that, God, why do we have ungodly leaders? Why do we have people who are promoting things that, that, that God is against? But understand, God in His wisdom, and perhaps it's for our punishment at times, God allows ungodly leaders to be in charge in, in various roles down through history. Even though their leadership may be ungodly, we are told that we are to obey it unless it contradicts the Word of God. And I think that's an important distinction because obviously there were several times in the Bible where they said we must obey God rather than men. So there are times when we choose, must choose, between human authority and God's authority. But Paul does say there are two reasons why we should obey. first one is very practical that if you disobey, there is possible punishment. Being a Christian does not exempt us. Uh, in fact, it obligates us in many ways to authority, maybe more than anyone, anyone else. So, first of all, uh, there is a punishment as a result of disobedience. But also, secondly, he says it's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of the Christian being a good citizen, obeying the laws that God has established and allowed over us, even though they may be ungodly leaders. And so this chain of, of command or authority would include all human authority, that children are to obey their parents, and citizens should respect law enforcement, and we should respect the military and, and political leaders, and students should respect their school leadership, and church members honor uh, church leaders, and employees respect employers. So you kind of see the chain of command in various settings, and it just tells that Christians were to acknowledge that authority. We're not to rebel against that. And that Christians are certainly to be good citizens in our community, that we're to uh, live and, and share with other people as a testimony of our faith. The previous verse here in chapter uh, 2, verse 12 of First Peter, says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, way he visit, on the day he visits us. So one of the reasons that we have a good testimony so that we kind of take the power out or the venom out of someone's accusations. 
They may claim you're doing something wrong, but they, in their heart they know your good deeds. And they may even wonder why. Why are they living like that? Peter says it's so the glory can go to God, they can see that he is in charge of your life. Plus, he adds, and by doing so, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. You know, some people have nothing more to do than to talk about others and criticize. And so when we live a good life, we kind of take the strength or the power out of their talk. So um, what Peter's telling us to do is just when everybody else in the world is kind of losing their mind, when people are running here and there in rebellion and doing what they want to do, you do what's right. You don't instigate or do evil, even when you're when you disagree or when you're treated in a poor way and you're suffering. You live in a way that honors God. And then he goes on and gives us a very specific list of things and how we should live. First of all, he says, "Live free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil." You know, he might tell them in the te- context that he's speaking, it's about their freedom in Christ because they didn't really have the kind of freedom that we have today. But today we take our freedom in Christ and we take our uh, national freedom, political freedom, and then we have a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. But just because we have the freedom to do it doesn't mean we necessarily ought to do it. Some things shouldn't be done under any circumstances. And and in other words, as Christians, we're not to return evil for evil. We're not to use our freedom to hurt other people in response to that. You know, what we've seen more and more over the last few years is that we see... Uh, that when an evil is done or misjustice is done, sometimes by police or by authorities, that other people feel like that gives them the freedom to respond in a negative way, like rioting or, or looting uh, whenever there's a situation that occurs. Peter says you don't do that. You don't use your freedom. Some things we're not free to do, but we take the freedom to do it. But even if we have freedom, we don't use that in a way to return evil for how someone's treated us. And then he also says, instead of doing that, we should serve God. And in the middle of all this, we find a way to bring glory to God. In the middle of the conflict, when the evil is going on, we find something positive to do. You know, I was thinking of an example of this, kind of this give and take. And I thought about uh, the fact that, um, you know, abortion has always been a very controversial issue. And there would be some Christians who would take it on themselves to go and be vandalized or even uh, attack or criticize and yell at those women who might be in line for an abortion and might have the freedom to do that, but Peter said, don't do stuff like that. Instead, we've heard other examples of people, believers, who would go and minister to the people in the line, maybe give them water or give them snacks or or, or just encourage them, pray for them in some way. That would be a way to serve God using the freedom that we have in a positive way to bring glory to God. And then thirdly, he says that we're to honor everyone. We're to honor everyone, and that seems hard. When you think about the people in life that you disagree with, maybe they're leaders, maybe they're just people in life, that we're to honor them. The people who are wrong, the people who are offensive, who are evil, who hurt us. How do we honor those people? Well, honor doesn't necessarily mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you support them. It doesn't mean that you give them a blessing in what they're doing. But what it does mean, it means that you find some way, some avenue, some channel some way to honor the relationship, to try to honor that person and lift them up. You know, our goal is not to win the argument. Our goal should be to win the person, to try to win them not only, maybe not to our side, but obviously to win them to Jesus. I read a story several years ago about a man named Daryl Davis. He's a Christian, African-American man who uh, was a musician and uh, a speaker, 
But he struggled with the question, why would, why would there be hatred? And this would, he lived in the South, and so there was a, a clan activity, and he, he wondered, why would a Klansman hate him, and they didn't even know it? And so he took it upon himself to go and to ask some of those um, Klansmen that question. And what he discovered is, is that when he began to build relationships with these Klansmen, these people who said they hated him, hated, hated all blacks, when he built that relationship, they became good friends, and in fact, many of them he won not only away from the clan, but he won them to Christ. In fact, he uh, won a grand wizard uh, in one case because he honored the man. He respected him. He was open to have a conversation. They built a relationship. They're good friends today. There's even a commentary uh, out, out about that. So it's kind of cool how you can honor people when you disagree with them in the way that they live. The fourth thing he says is that we should love the brotherhood of believers. Love the brotherhood of believers. In Galatians 6, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So the Bible says that we ought to do good to everyone, but there is a group of people that we ought to care for first, especially those who belong to the family of God. And these are people, in the, these are fellow Christians. These are people in our church, but not just in our church. This is a reason why we might go to Eastern Kentucky and work specifically with a Christian school down there because they are the family of God, family of believers there. And this helps us align our priorities that God has a family and there are those who are outside the family. The needs of the family need to be met and then we meet even beyond that. We as a church, we send a lot of aid all over the world and we send help people in various situations and settings. But one of the things that we make sure that we do is care for the people in our church family first. And so we have a group of men called deacons who are committed to that. Their number one role and responsibility is to meet the needs of the church. And we see them doing a lot of different things uh, practically on Sunday morning. But what you don't always see is the work that they do uh, throughout the week by helping people move or helping uh, assist those who are handicapped or those who are in need or widows or whatever it may be. We want to care for the church family because we're given commands to care for the family of believers. And then the fifth thing he said is that we should fear God. We should fear God. We spent some time on this a couple weeks ago talking about the fact that God is over all authority. So because he's over authority and established authority, he is to be held in reverence and awe and respect over all authority over the world. He has the final say in our lives. And so he says, honor God. And then the last thing he mentions here is honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Now keep in mind the setting that they were living in. They as Christians, the emperor, you know, threatened them with death that they worship God. And yet he said, you are to honor the emperor. You know, and putting that in practical terms, I don't know about you, but it's been hard for me to do this for the last several years to honor our emperor or our leader, right? It would be great if our leader, if our president had high morals and respected God and set a good example of leadership for everyone to follow, was worthy of respect. But we haven't seen that in a long time, have we? It just seems like those kind of leaders don't end up being the one that leads the country. And that's challenging for us, you know. Seeing our president taking selfies with topless transgenders, male and female, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, that, that's difficult to take. It's hard to respect that, isn't it? Hard to honor that. Hearing our previous president and candidate uh, belittling people, calling them childish names, being crude and rude, I mean, that's difficult for us to look at and say, this is our leader. It's hard to respect that. But when we get back to this, it says that we are called to honor the office 
maybe if we if we do struggle to, to honor the person. It's hard in, in our culture to honor that kind of model for it, isn't it? And so it's difficult. Remember, Peter wrote this book to encourage us and challenge us and stretch us to think about how do we honor the people that we have a hard time respe- respecting. They had it in that day. We have it in ours. Then he goes into even a more difficult situation in the second part of our text here, talking about slaves. Let's pick that up in verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So if we go back and we look at the setting in Bible times, we find out that many, many of the Christians were actually slaves. Someone estimated at that time that perhaps 50% of the Roman Empire, 50% of the people were were slaves. And what that would mean would be a, a small ruling class and a large class of people that would be called slaves in some way, some, some, some shape or form. And, and typically in that day, there would be three types of slaves. We're, we're really kind of familiar with only one of those uh, in our country's history, dark history. Uh, but in that day, slaves were from all different races if, uh, if on the trade of the slave trading. And um, oftentimes they would be, be people from all over, uh, even the same race, uh, even Roman citizens sometimes might be enslaved if they were bought into slavery. And slaves were the property of the master. They were not considered to be full human beings. They were diminished. They were looked down upon. And, you know, when we think back uh, about the horrific uh, uh, history of our own country, uh, you know, that it's a painful thing. It's the most painful part of our country's history. 150 years ago, it still causes conflict and pain uh, that, that many years later. It was ungodly, and the greed and the uh, prejudice that was held against uh, uh, against a race of people in the hearts of a few Ameri- uh, many Americans at that time. And it led our country into a civil war where 620,000 men died fighting over that, brother against brother. And it took a strong president, it took a leader, it took a man of respect and honor uh, who was anti-slavery to lead our country out of that. And when we look back and we look at that horrible period in our history, uh, it's just shameful that we, that we see that. That was a reality. Should never ever be viewed in any any other way as horrific, though. Well, that's the one type of slavery that we're most familiar with, and it's perhaps the worst type and the most unjust. But there was a second type of slavery in that day that was a real thing, and that was prisoners of war. That whenever a country would go in and defeat another country, they would take all the homes, the possessions, the men, women, children, and they would lead them away into slavery. We read about that in the book of Daniel, uh, where the Israelite children were. God allowed them to be overtaken by the Babylonians. And they carried all of the, the wisest, the most uh, upstanding young men and women out of the country and took them 700 miles away uh, to Babylon. And there they became uh, servants, bond servants, and prisoners of war. Uh, that was a reality in that day. A third uh, way that slaves were, were selected were would be called bond servants. And this was a different. These were people whose freedom had been bought or many of them actually sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt or perhaps to survive in terrible times. So you might go in and, uh, and, and voluntarily become a slave and uh, for a period of time, usually until about the age of 30, 
And it was a, maybe a business agreement that you went in because you didn't have any way to support yourself, and they would care for you, or maybe they would learn a, a business or a trade of some sort. Uh, but you agreed to do that, a bond service. And, uh, you know, we have that today, but we just don't call it that. Uh, it doesn't sound quite as nice as what we call it today. Uh, for example, one of our daughters uh, agreed to work for a state agency for two years in exchange for a part of her education. Uh, so she agreed to do that. She didn't realize what she was getting into because once she got the job, uh, she felt like a slave. And she just she got through it. She did it, but it was really tough. But she agreed to do that in order for some economic uh, economic help. So that would be common that day. So you just think about many, many of the believers were slaves under one uh, setting or another, and, uh, and they didn't know how to respond. How, what do you do about that? You know, the Bible never condones slavery. It never says slavery is right, but the Bible acknowledges that slavery did exist, and it tells how to live it in a Christian life or how Christians should live it and, and react. Now, today we take that and we look at this, and we believe Peter's trying to tell us how do we learn to live and endure through unjust suffering. Nothing more unjust than, than slavery, right? And there certainly was suffering in all forms of slavery. So how do we live in a situation where we are treated poorly and we can't do anything about it? We can't get out of it or we can't change it. You know, elsewhere in the Bible it says that God calls us where we are and that where we are, we should be faithful. That wherever, whatever our calling is as, as Christians, we are to be faithful right there. And so that's what they said to slaves. If you're a slave, make sure that you're faithful as a slave. If you were a Christian and you were a slave, you had to act like a Christian slave, right? In fact, there's an, even a book of the Bible, the book of Philemon, uh, written about a slave named Onesimus, who uh, Paul acknowledged was a slave. He didn't tell his owner to set him free. But he did tell the owner to be fair to him, and he told the slave to be obedient to his master. So whatever the setting was, they were to be faithful in that. He says here that we should make sure that we do good when we are mistreated in a setting like that. If a slave in that day would be disobedient to their master and deserve punishment, he said, what gain is it? You know, there's no glory to God if you're disobedient and you get punished. But if you are faithful, even in unfair suffering, then that shows that you know who God is, and God will get the glory through that. You know, when we think about slaves or servants, we think, first of all, about Jesus, because he is set up as the example of the suffering servant. No one ever suffered so willingly. No one ever suffered as unjustly as he did. And so we are called, as Peter says, to follow in his steps. Verse 21, In this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for, unright, for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You know, I don't think anyone wants to suffer in any way, justly or unjustly. We don't, we don't like suffering. Nobody's praying for God to bring suffering in their life. But the Bible says that part of our ministry and our testimony as a Christian is to suffer in some ways. And the reason is that we're not in heaven. We're not home yet. The Bible makes a big deal about the fact that we're aliens and foreigners and strangers in a, in a land that isn't ours. 
And until we get to heaven, we're not going to be at peace. We're not going to be where we're called to be. So you're going to have some hard days. There are going to be some difficult times. There are going to be some challenging days in life in the best of situations. If you're in a situation that you might call a slave-like situation, it's going to be miserable under an employee or under a family member or someone who treats you harshly. If you live life like most of us do, you're going to interact with people every day and somebody's going to treat you unjustly. What do you do about those things? This is the kind of advice that Peter gives to us. When we have the hard days and all hard times, understand they might just be because you're a normal human being in life or maybe it's because you're a believer. Here's what Paul says. He wrote in the... Uh, 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be surprised when struggles and suffering that are unjust come to you in times when you're just trying to do what's right. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can really feel sorry for myself when I'm trying to do what's right and things don't work, right? Well, don't be surprised because suffering is going to come. Unfire suffering, though, unjust suffering, actually has a purpose in our life. The guy even uses these things specifically, perhaps even sets up these scenarios for our good. So what is the good that comes out of suffering? Well, first of all, suffering that is unjust makes us grateful for Jesus. It makes us grateful that we have an example. Jesus suffered unfairly, and Peter said he left an example for us that we should follow in his steps. You know, we talk a lot around here about being in his steps, and we say that following Jesus means that we walk like he does, walking in the steps of Jesus. And that means that we live our life, we try to design our life, we try to encourage other people to follow us in our steps, disciple people. But also, we discover that when we look at the steps of Jesus, we see the suffering that he went through. And we say, well, isn't all that unusual if we're following Jesus that we're going to suffer as well? It makes us grateful that he's gone before of us, though, before us, and we have a greater appreciation for what he endured. Even though there's a lot of difference in the level, the severity of suffering, obviously, we don't have to go through that. I mean, Jesus suffered public mockery, a, a near-fatal near beating. He was rejected by his heavenly Father. Uh, ultimately, he was put to death by, by torture. I mean, Jesus went through all of that unjustly. None of us have ever had to suffer like that. So whenever we have to suffer in some ways, we ought to be grateful to understand that Jesus has already walked that path. And Jesus didn't respond negatively. In fact, he didn't retaliate or respond in anger. Instead, what he did was he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Maybe when you're struggling with difficult people, you ought to pray for them, that same prayer. God, I'm sure they don't know what they're doing. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And ask God to forgive them. The second thing suffering does, it allows us to be comforted by Jesus. Not only do we see his example, but as we're walking in his steps, that means that we do the same thing Jesus did, and we find comfort in him. So what did Jesus do when he was treated unjustly? Peter says he entrusted himself to the one who judged justly. There were people who were judging him unjustly, but he gave himself over to the one who is a fair just. In other words, he gave himself over to his father. He commended his spirit to his Father. God and the Holy Spirit were there to help Jesus endure suffering. And the great thing is, is that those two same resources are available for us today. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself, Jesus Christ, our mediator. Just as Jesus was comforted, we can be comforted as well. When Jesus was in a physical body, he knew what it was like to physically suffer. 
to mentally suffer, to psychologically suffer. And when you think about what he went through, especially in his arrest and crucifixion, he went through all of those things, everything that we have. In fact, the Bible says there's nothing that he, we've been through that he hasn't already gone through himself. He knows what it's like to be hurt physically. He knows what it's like to have people say things about you that are not true. He knows what it's like to have a mob to wreck your reputation. He knows what it's like to have one friend betray you and another one deny you three times. He knows what it's like to be harassed, to be threatened, intimidated. Everything we could imagine, Jesus has already been through those things. And not only does he know what it's like to go through them, he knows what it's like to want to retaliate. Because I believe that Jesus, being human, fully human, he struggled like you and I. No doubt, he, even though he had the power, he could have called down heaven's forces to come down and, and right everything that was wrong. He didn't do that. But he knew what it was like to, to feel the, the temptation. Listen to Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Those emotions that you struggle with, the unjustness, the unfairness, the questions, you know, all those things, Jesus dealt with those same temptations. But in those things, he did not sin. He gave them to his Father, and he loved and he responded uh, in, in a positive way. And so now we can approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, knowing it's possible, and we'll find grace and mercy in our own need. The Bible says that Jesus bore our sins and by his wounds, we've been healed. So he gives us that comfort. The third thing that, that suffering does, it makes us more like Jesus. In the process, as we're suffering, we become more and more like him. Walking in his steps, seeing how we respond, we do the same thing. You know, um, Jesus was the suffering sub, uh, servant. The Bible talks a lot about that. And uh, down through the years, there's been attempts to try to relate that in a positive way. For example... In uh, 1896, a minister named Charles uh, Sheldon wrote a fictional book. Uh, he was a writer, and he wrote a book about a minister named Reverend Maxwell. And uh, Reverend Maxwell is writing a sermon one day and is interrupted by a man, comes looking for some food and some work. And uh, Maxwell doesn't have any resources. He's kind, but he kind of sends the guy away, only for the man to show up on Sunday morning and to address the church and ask the people, are they living up to the ideals of their faith. In other words, are you living up what you say you you uh, you believe? Well, Maxwell is deeply touched, and so he takes this man who's homeless into his home where the guy dies the next week. So Maxwell, uh, Reverend Maxwell, is deeply impacted by this. He challenges the whole congregation to pledge to live for a year, asking the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? The, the name of the book actually is called In His Steps. And, uh, and he challenged them to do that. And basically, over the next year, the church was transformed and the com entire community as well. And it's a really a, pr a pretty cool book to read. Now, you probably recognize that title I gave you a few moments ago because in the 90s, that book was reprinted. Uh, and it sparked a movement, the WWJD, the bracelets and necklaces and everything else that, that people wore, which, which was great. It kind of brought it back into our, our, our culture. But asking the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And as we do what Jesus did, we become more and more like Jesus. So our suffering has a purpose and a plan. Even though we don't want to, we don't run to it, we know it's a part of life, 
it might be minimal for some. It might be extreme for others. We know people who suffer, and we don't know why. And, and even though they pray, they're not released from that. It's hard to embrace. But we do know that the path of suffering leads us to become more and more like Jesus because we're following him. The last verse of 1 Peter 2 says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. There are a lot of parallels and a lot of uh, uh, comparisons made in the scripture to us as being sheep. And, and that being an agriculture area and raising a lot of sheep in that day, I'm confident that, that they got the message really quick. And so most of us in our world don't have sheep or know much about sheep. And up to about a year ago, I could say the same thing. I've been around farms all my life, never had sheep. But about a year ago, I let my bride talk me into getting sheep. So we have two sheep at this point. One had to have a friend. You get one, you have to have two. So we have two sheep. And I told First Service I was going to say a lot of nice things about sheep. But a few things I've learned about sheep. First of all, they're not smart. And uh, they're not smart at all. They, they would drown in a storm probably if they were looking up. So uh, uh, sheep are not smart. Uh, sheep do not have any loyalty. Uh, if I'm feeding them, they love me. Uh, when Lori walks in, they leave me, and they love her. So they're, they're not loyal at all, and uh, they're really self-centered. Uh, they're all about that. They don't, they're not very smart. So when the Bible says, oh, you are like sheep, you're not a compliment. It's not like, oh, it's warm, fuzzy. No, it's, it's not like that at all. It's kind of an insult, but it's real. And so what Peter is saying, and like Jesus said, he called himself the good shepherd, that we have a, one who loves us, who leads us in spite of our difficulty, our disloyalty, you know, our, our, our ignorance. And he leads us and he loves us. He loves us and he calls us to himself. So he says, come and follow after me. The other thing I learned about sheep is that you can't drive sheep. You can't drive them. you got to lead them. you got to have a reason for them to come and follow you. And once they get to following you, they'll go anywhere that you want to go, but you can't drive them. And we're kind of like that, aren't we? And that's why we have a Savior who loves us enough to lead us, setting the example, walking, and we walk in His steps. And because of that, we discover a home. We discover a place where we are loved and cared for. It's a beautiful picture. It's not so flattering of us, but it's a beautiful picture. And there's a good shepherd that cares for us and calls us to come to Himself. He set the example. He died for us. He suffered for us. He tells us how to live. And now we need to follow him. I pray that you're encouraged by that. Uh, maybe just something that we talked about today will help you this week. As you think about a struggle or suffering or challenge that you have, that God will just teach you a little bit more about following him. You know, every Lord's Day, we have a time that we just we just call it response. I'm going to be up front. Uh, George is going to step up, be available for prayer. If you want to pray with, with someone uh, else. But we would love to take just take this time and just pray for you. The Good Shepherd's loved us. He called us into relationship with Him. We want to minister to you and serve you. If you're here and you've never given your life to Christ and this lifestyle sounds like one that you're curious about, I'd love to talk to you about that. And You can contact me anytime about that. Right now, let's just pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time.